0: Good morning, everyone. you found Financial Food for Thought. My name is Mark Donnelly, and Carrie Waddell has the weekend off. She's playing mom this weekend with a recent college grad. Congratulations to Carrie and her family. I thought we might all need a little relaxation music after the chaotic week we had in the economic stock market and things like that. Now, I'm taping this show on Friday morning, and it looks like there's a little bit of sigh of relief as the markets are, all the major markets are coming back pretty strong today. Of course, that's just been the roller coaster of volatility that we've all experienced, really, since the beginning of the year. And a lot of people were starting to, I don't know, panic. Hopefully, you didn't panic, and... You, you follow the one of the recommendations we've always had on this show because we never know when the next stock market correction or crash or recession is going to happen. The idea is, you know, do you, you, have you prepared your, you and your family for the next one because it will come? and those are things like making sure you have an adequate cash reserve, making sure you're not taking on more risk than you are to be okay, that you're systematically rebalancing so you're not overly exposed to risk. And of course, what we highly recommend is that if you are concerned then you when you're modeling your financial projection out 30 years, 40 years, however long you think your retirement's going to be, that you've modeled in an economic downturn especially if you are thinking that that next economic downturn could happen in the first or the next few years that's corresponding with a major financial decision that you're trying to make that could be your retirement date that could be um, buying a new house It, it could be paying for college education, it's, you know, it's, it's grad season. Talk a little bit about that today. Um, it's also, or it's something more like the Hawaii vacation that you're trying to book um, or major home renovation is another one that comes up all the time with our clients. So the idea is saying, can I still do all those things? Even if we do have an economic downturn, or if you're not if you're not in that camp thinking that we're not going to have a recession, that you're more in the camp that thinks we're going to have embedded inflation, okay, Biden inflation, um, you know, then what do you do? And and I'll talking a little about that today. Now, the only, <laughs> we, we got a lot of inflation data this week, uh, the CPI and the PPI. So I'll we'll go over those numbers today. But it's also the The idea that it's it, it we've, we've so we've experienced the inflation right now compared to two years ago, a year ago, let's say. But it's more also it's, it's part two of that is all right, you can mark the market right now if you think that inflation has peaked now. Looking at we'll look at the numbers here, and, and perhaps it has. That that creates your new base, so to speak, your grocery bill, your current utility bill, your current gasoline, you know things like that. But then it's how much additional inflation are you going to book for the future? And that's where we get different opinions. And you hear one thing from the so-called experts. Well, let's say the central bankers, Fed Chair Jerome Powell who's still saying that we'll get back to 2% target inflation. I don't know if, how many people believe him. Or President Biden and the other political parties that say, you know, and they're going to fix inflation because they know how to do that. I really don't know if the president can fix inflation, quite honestly. Um, they can talk about the corporations that are price gouging and they can talk about releasing strategic oil reserves, but I I don't know if that cures the inflation risk. Just maybe helps it a little bit. Um, So, you know, how do you then model in if or how would your plan A financial uh, plan look differently if you used higher inflation? And it's not necessarily that you may use higher inflation forever it may be more that you're going to assume that this non-transitory inflation is going to stick around a bit longer so maybe a year two years do i hear three years and then at that point after that then you're back to the normal and even if you're saying that the normal you know a lot of people are saying Mark I don't think the normal is 2% anymore and we never use 2% in our plans for our clients we you know at the lowest I think we've ever used is 3% for daily living expenses usually 3.5 to 4 and then for health insurance or college education we were typically using higher 4 to 5% and going forward maybe that's 5.5 to 6% for those types of higher inflated uh, expenses so so. Let's get started, though, with Elizabeth Warren, all right, because, you know, I don't know if Elizabeth Warren, of course, the senator out of Massachusetts, I don't know if she is going to make another presidential run in 2024, but it sure seems like it, because she seems to get herself in the news. And she has a lot to say about the problems the what, who or how to fix the USA's economic problems right now. And this was a conversation when Fed Chair Jerome Powell was in front of the Senate hearings. This was back in January.
1: So since President Biden took office, we've added more than 6.4 million jobs, the most jobs that have ever been added to the economy in US history. But over the past few months, families have faced higher prices at the grocery store, at the gas pump. Addressing inflation is one of the Federal Reserve's most important jobs. And if we're going to solve this problem, then we need to understand why it's happening. So if we can, let's start with Econ 101. Chair Powell, in markets with lots of competitors, she,
0: she are companies' profit
1: margins generally likely to stay low? That is, in competitive markets, are profit margins likely to stay steady, modestly above the cost of labor, materials, and capital?
2: Microeconomics.
0: Okay. So here's that's the question she's proposing. She's talking about profit margins or bottom line. So she's trying to make a case, and you'll hear she'll roll out her case saying that if everything else was equal, companies shouldn't be experiencing higher profit margins, you know, post Rona or pre Rona. So, so. Here's Powell's first, you know, answer. I would tell you that all of the things equal,
2: you, you know, you'll compete down to your marginal cost. Good.
1: And in markets with greater concentration and not much competition, are corporations generally able to raise prices and increase profit margins,
2: all else being equal? So the connection, actually, the connection between concentration and market power is not as clean as we might think it might be. In some of the industries that have, uh, have concentrated, they've actually, um, there actually has been, you know, sort of lower cost increases. It's resulted in, in lower cost to consumers, and I'm thinking there of retail and things like that, so it's not as direct.
1: Well, but let me ask it the other way, then, because we're still kind of doing Econ 101 here. If you're a corporation that has eaten up most of the competition and cornered the market, is it easier for you to raise prices on your customers and maximize your profits because you don't have to worry about losing your business? In other words, that's you've lost the, the discipline that the market imposes.
2: In principle, if you don't have competition and you're a monopolist, yes, you can raise your prices.
1: Okay, and over the past year we know that prices have risen because of supply chain problems unexpected shifts in the demand for goods and even higher labor costs but if corporations were simply passing along these costs in highly competitive markets would the company's profit margins have changed much
0: all right so that's her point so she's saying okay if all was equal and there was equal competition then all the companies are experiencing the same rising cost that she mentioned, supply chain issues, the, the RONA issues and, and, and things like that. And um, so in that sense, if they were just passing the increase in their costs onto their customers, that wouldn't necessarily increase their profit margins. The bottom line, it would keep it somewhat status quo. So that's her proposition. That's her th- hypothesis. Is that there's something else going on? So what, what does Chairman Powell come back with?
2: You know, so many things affect affect those uh, that calculation. I, but in principle, you could be right. But uh,
1: uh, was well, very much not what we're seeing. Right now, today, nearly two out of three of the biggest publicly traded corporations in the country are reporting fatter profit margins.
0: Wow. So that's a, so her statistic. If it's right, I'm not fact checking her. I don't know. But if she's saying two out of three of these major corporations, these big bad corporations are reporting higher profit margins when everyone else is struggling.
1: than they reported before the pandemic which doesn't sound like they're just passing along costs. So so let me ask you, does that increase in profit margins combined with greater market concentration in industry after industry suggest to you that some corporations may be passing along increased costs and at the same time charging more on top of that to fatten their profit margins?
2: Hmm. That that could be right. It could also just be though that demand is incredibly strong, and and that um, uh, you know they're they're raising prices because they can.
0: Bam, that, <laughs> that's exactly Elizabeth Warren's point that they're they're raising their prices because they can. Now that's that's where you get the the big democratic cl- cry that these corporations are price gouging all of us and they're they're only doing it not because they're really just trying to maintain the profit margin they're trying to do better than that, and at the at the uh, the carpet bag and, and, and saying that, hey, we're, we're going to charge a higher price until we see that we're, our price is so high that we experience demand destruction. Uh, but by that time, it, it's too late, right? Because the country's in trouble. Well, that's the point. They're
1: raising prices because they can, and they're not being competed down. You know, market concentration has allowed giant corporations to hide behind claims of increased cost of fat and their profit margins. So the consumer pays more both because the corporation face higher costs and because, as you put it, because the corporation can increase prices. The reason I raise this is that higher prices have many causes and we can't overlook the role that concentrated corporate power has played in creating the conditions for price gouging. Now, before my time expired. All
0: right, so your time has expired on this show, Elizabeth. Um, I don't know. So that's that's the case. Do you believe that? Do you believe that this inflation will be corrected because the the government will go after the big, bad corporations and stop them from price gouging? Do you believe that more along the central bank's belief that, It's just an imbalance of supply and demand coming off of the Rona shutdown and the stimulus package, the beach ball bounce recovery and how inventories it's going to take a couple of years, you know, with those, remember the stranded ships and the lockdowns globally, and it's going to take a couple of years before companies get back to their normal uh, you know, supply chain time limit, you know, timeline, and as, as well as getting the right amount of inventory, you know, to that, that is really going to be stable for, to meet demand going forward after all the revenge spending is done. I don't know. So we'll talk about that. All right. So you're listening to financial food for a lot brought to you by the estate planning team. The State planning team is an Ohio-registered fiduciary planning firm. We've been helping Cleveland families build custom financial plans for over 35 years. And if you would like more information, you can visit our website. That's financialfoodforthought.com. It's the name of this radio show, Financial Food for Thought. And it's also the name of our website, financialfoodforthought.com. Just one string, lowercase letters. And on there, you, you, there's financial articles, there's financial calculators, and you can link to our radio show podcast. So if you are out and about anytime, you're on a computer or you've got a smartphone, you can just log in and go to either WHK 1420's website or go to our financialfoodforthought.com We have a link button. And, the, and there, you know the, the, the station keeps a good bank of our previous shows going back months. You can also, on our website, sign up for a free, no-obligation consultation. That can be done in person or, you know, it, on the phone, whatever your preference is. You know, they're, we, we, they're telling us there's a bit of a resurgence now of the, the Rona. I don't know if it's the Omicron coming back or whatever. Um, but, you know, if you're concerned about that, we can certainly do the free consultation over the telephone. Uh, if you don't want to go to the website, Simply call our main office. The phone number is 440-239-2090. That's 440-239-2090. You can just leave a message and somebody will get back to you on Monday. So in a very trying year to date economically for everyone... Can we find any good news with higher inflation? Um, well, here's some good news: there's uh, Social Security benefits could jump 8.6 percent, you know, this year, the highest since 1981. Um, and again, why is it happening? Now, we we got a big increase in 2020 uh, for 2022. You know, when the increase was 5.9 percent cost of living increase and they're saying that for 2023 that could be 8.6 percent obviously it's based on the uh, consumer price index that the the, now it's not using the one that we're going to quote today what happened it's it's really the urban wage earners and clerical workers or what is better known as cpiw right and that's jumped i think about 9.4 percent over the uh, past year so because of that beach ball bounce, that will help with the COLA for 2023. Um, Now, it's interesting, though, we're just playing catch-up. So the Senior Citizens League does a lot of work studying historical Social Security increases versus the cost of real inflation for the retiree. And there's, they report that Social Security recipients have lost about forty percent of their buying power since the year two thousand. Right? Remember, we've always said on this show, your parents—you know, for the baby boomers out there—your parents had a better retirement than you will, um, for a lot of cases, because you know they 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 retired with pensions. A lot of cases, they didn't see the huge rise in healthcare costs, and they also had. Their Social Security had more buying power than than their children's. All right, um, that's the deepest loss in buying power since the beginning of the study. It, you know it, it, what they're saying right now. You know, in 2010. Uh, so, so although Social Security benefits have climbed 64 percent, 64 percent since 2000, thanks to the cost of living adjustments, typical senior expenses through march of 2022 have actually grown by more than double that rate 130 percent. in order to maintain the same purchasing power as there was 22 years ago social security would have to increase by about 540 dollars per month um so that's so good news bad news but again it's good news if if we do have a that high of, of a social security increase now now it's just that the stock market can can you know, turn around or at least not continue this roller coaster up and down. Right. You know, I was kidding last week about sell in May and go away. I I think (laughs) I think we we call it sell in May or die away uh, this year. I mean, what the S&P and and again, as of this show taping on Friday, I think the S&P is down four point eight, nine percent year to date. And that's coming off. uh, Oh, I'm sorry. Four point eight, nine percent in May. Year-to-date, it's it's closer to 17%. But just in May, down 4.89%. Coming off of April, S&P was down 8.79%. So that, that's a big two-month decrease. That's when people start jumping off bridges, right? Um, now, if you want to look at the NASDAQ, wow. All right, so the NASDAQ was down in May, so far in May, halfway done, 7.81%. All right and coming off of an April decline of 132 percent That's a 21% decline a, a bear a crash in just the last month and a half. All right. Um, and so now so the question is, did you do your did you trigger your Roth conversions? You know, did you did you convert your tech stocks that are down 20 percent over to your Roth IRA to get a little bit of a, of a taxable income discount? Right. I talked a lot about that last week. If you want to go back and l- listen to last week's podcast show. Um, but that's the idea of. You know, one of the jewels or one of, if you're trying to make some lemonade out of some lemons, if you're planning on doing a Roth conversion this year and typically you were going to wait to the end of the year, but when you' the market's down and you're going to, you know assume that you were going to just hold the same tech stocks, you just wanted to not sell low, you just wanted to hold on to them until they come back because you believe they will come back over time, then that's you may want to convert them over to Roth IRA while the the value's down because the tax value is based on the value of the shares when you move them or you know convert them. And then all now they're sitting in your Roth IRA and all that regrowth that you are expecting to get over the you know next 10 20 years would all come back tax free in the Roth IRA. It also works on other issues, like it, it, it lowers your future required minimum distributions, um, because of course, Roth IRAs, there are no required minimum distributions. Um, now you still see a lot of articles that say it's not, it's just a wash. You know you don't a Roth conversion doesn't really win you everything. And you know that's there's a lot of those articles out there. And I don't know, it, it depends on how you look at it. But typically, when you see the article saying, don't bother doing a Roth conversion because it's really just a wash, that's typically the author is is getting to the point that if you're in the same tax bracket, the same effective tax rate now when you do the conversion versus later when you take distributions, it's and you're doing withholding on the Roth conversion, the way you work out the numbers, it comes out pretty even in the end. And, th- and that's the simple mathematical, you know, example, and you, you could, you know, go through that with, with your numbers. But I could come back just as easily and say, yeah, but what happens if – another simple example is it, – it, 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 so if they're saying no one should ever do a Roth conversion, well, how about the pre-RMD retiree who is in a zero tax bracket? And they're just sitting on waiting to do RMDs under the Secure Act 1. You know, that's now age 72. And they're just going to not do any IRA distributions. They don't need the money. And they're in a zero tax bracket. Well, maybe they should be doing a Roth conversion to max out their zero bracket. Because chances are, when the RMDs do begin, that will increase their taxable income to the point where they probably will be paying taxes. So they might as well max out the zero bracket and, and say if they have $4,000 room or $5,000 room to max out their zero bracket, they might just want to go ahead and do a $5,000 Roth conversion. It's technically tax-free to them, and now that 5000 is sitting and growing tax-free forever in the Roth IRA. So that's a simple example of why someone went. And and, oh, believe me, over the decades, we've had many clients, new clients come into us that hadn't thought about that, and we kind of clued them in, and they're like, gee, why didn't anybody ever tell me to do that before? Well, that's why we're different at the estate planning team. Um, The other thing, too, is if you were concerned about the market going down further, And you can't stomach the losses that you're seeing on paper right now. And you want to stop the bleeding. You're still maybe thinking about doing a Roth conversion, but you're not too excited about having that converted amount right back into the stock market because you believe the stock market has further south to go before we get into this recovery. So uh, you could still execute now the Roth conversion, but in that in this situation, you wouldn't re just reinvest right away. You may want to leave it in cash sitting inside your Roth IRA. And so sometimes we call that dry powder, right? In other words, you're just sitting on the sidelines now, and when you deem it appropriate, you'll put that Roth IRA cash back to work and and then go from there. So so in that scenario, yeah, you're you're kind of you're cutting your losses now and yet you're still getting a tax discount to move it over to Roth. Um, But now you've got, you're just going to leave it in cash in the Roth IRA for a bit until you think that the bottom is hit. Now, you, a lot of, I know a lot of I'm hearing a lot right through the radio waves. A lot of people are saying, Mark, that's timing. And I always thought you can't time the market. Of course, you can't time the market. But that doesn't mean people don't try. So it's just you have to have a peace of mind or you could dollar cost average back in. You could go back to that. So there's just different ways. So these are a couple of things that when we when we, you know, we have helped clients, navigate through Roth IRA conversions, and, and we run a lot of scenarios to get them in a decision-making mode. And that's um thing. Now, all right, so how about those CPI data? Okay, so there, an anomaly showed up uh, between the headline CPI and the core CPI. So let's go through some numbers. So how, So what, what the experts or what the economists, what the, the, the federal you know, central bank officials, what they're looking for is to say, okay, do we see inflation peaking out? All right. Um, and if that's what they're looking for, in other words, have we peaked out, meaning the worst is behind us? Um, now, so we got April numbers this week on CPI. So headline CPI. So year over year came in 8.3%, a bit better than the previous March, 8.5%. Okay. So that you could say, all right, that's going the right direction. Finally, because since the beginning of the year, um you know well even going let's go back to november so going back to november year over year was 6.8 december was seven january was 7.5 february was 7.9 march was 8.5 that's a straight line up and then all of a sudden april a little bit dipped back down to 8.3 but how about month over month that's more recent that's saying okay what's happening in the latest 30 days all right, so in March, that number was 1.2%. So it, inflation went, in the CPI, headline CPI, went up 1.2% just for the month of March. In April, that was down to 0.3. That's a huge decrease from 1.2% in March to 0.3% in April. Now, here's the anomaly. Let's look at core CPI, not headline. And of course, core CPI, what the central bankers favor and what most serious economists favor is when you you take out food and energy. Now, a lot of people don't like that idea because they're saying, "Mark, that's not realistic." If you take out food and energy, but it's also may not be realistic if you leave food and energy in because food and energy and energy is basically the price at the pump. Or, you know, let's get serious. The, the The idea is that's globally it fluctuates so so incredibly up, up and down. It's hard to get a reading. So let's look at core CPI. So in April, the latest it came in year over year at 6.2% better than the previous March year to year, 6.5%. All right. So again, that corresponds with the headline CPI going in the right direction. But now let's look at the month to month. This is what threw up, a, this would raise some eyebrows because in April, the month the month increase in core CPI came in at 0.6%. All right. Compared to the previous month, April, where it came in at 0.3%, an increase. That's the anomaly. So what we're saying is in a month to month, the core CPI went up wrong direction where the headline CPI went way down in the right direction. And that is blamed, or the reason for that is because gasoline was down in April. It was up in March, and it was down in April. So that skews the whole data. That's why most serious economists say, yeah, that's why we don't use uh, headline CPI we 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 think that core is low because gasoline at the pump can go can go up and down huge percentages in a, in a period of 30 days um now so you know we'll, well so do you think inflation has peaked um or do you think we have a way to go and that's where we get back to how we can run different financial models based on those different scenarios. And you can say, well, what is a conservative case scenario? What's realistic? You know, those are the two parameters we always talk about when you're making an assumption in your financial plan is that when you have to make that assumption, go back and check to make sure you're covering both parameters. One, that it's conservative, and two, that it's realistic. All right, so you're listening to Mark Donnelly, Carrie's playing mom this weekend. She's got the weekend off. And this is Financial Food for Thought. If you'd like to get a hold of us and see how if we can help you build a custom financial plan based on different scenarios, sometimes we call those worst-case scenarios, where you're saying, okay, plan A is working under a, one set of assumptions, but would my plan B still be working if we have a more negative economic downturn than what I had built into my plan A? And that could be a recession, could be higher inflation, you know, for the next few years, and that leaves our clients in more of a decision-making mode. So, if you'd like to get a hold of us, you can call the estate planning team. Our number is four four zero. Two three nine two zero nine zero. 239 2090 that's 440-239-2090, or you can visit our website, financialfoodforthought.com, and you can sign up for a consultation on the website, you can tap into previous podcasts, radio shows, and there's also all sorts of good articles and tax calculators and different financial calculators and all that. Not so much tax calculators, more of the financial calculators. So it's also time of the year where you may have a recent graduate. Okay. So if you're looking for some good financial advice for your recent college grad, one that I could recommend is you can clue them in to the 50-30-20 rule. And I talk about the 50... 30-20 rule you know pretty often on this show and I think I was talking about it a few weeks ago as a matter of fact but it's the idea that if whatever your your gross income is you know 50% goes to cover your mandatory living expenses 30% goes to more discretionary spending and 20% is what you try to save and You know, who came up or who's one of the people crediting for making it popular, you know, worldwide is who you heard speaking at the beginning, drilling Fed Chair Powell, no other than Elizabeth Warren. So it was in a book that she wrote with her daughter. uh, I think it was back in 2005. And it was called All Your Worth, The Ultimate Lifetime Money Plan. And that was basically now known as the 50-30-20 rule. And I know that it's very difficult to to actually get that, do that. Um, You know, it's hard enough to even try to save 10%, right, of your pay, more or less 20%. But... If you can learn and get started on the right foot, I can only guarantee one thing. In other words, if if you're a recent college graduate or you can tell your college graduates this, that if they practice this 50-30-20 rule and they can live under that rule for their 30-40 years or how long they're going to be working, I I can only guarantee that they're going to have a great retirement because they'll be so financially secure. And quite frankly, it doesn't matter if you're making $50,000 a year or $100,000 a year. The, the point of the compounding savings and the idea that you're living below your means, that is what builds and, and, and you know that's what prevents the uh, lifestyle creep that we call it. In other words, where as your pay increases over your career, instead of increasing your savings rate, you instead just increase your discretionary spending or your mandatory spending in the sense that you buy too big of a house, you know, or, or too expensive of a car, you know, things like that. So now maybe Elizabeth Warren's whole plan was that she that the, if she could get her other wish, which is to cancel all student loan debt, well, then maybe the, the recent college grad might have a better chance of trying to save 10 to 20% of their pay. All right. Now she's had a, she's been in the news had a lot of quotes recently. You know, I don't know where this student loan debt forgiveness is going. I still question whether the president has the power to forgive student loan debt just by executive order. I, we all know that they can, you know put a moratorium on it you know Trump did it and Biden's doing it but it's different to say it's outright forgiven all right it's a different it's crossing a a, a different threshold now elizabeth warren thinks there's no issue about that here's her quote Look, we know that the President has the authority to cancel student loan debt, and the best way we know that is because President Obama did it, President Trump did it, and President Biden has now done it repeatedly. The power is clearly there well, I'm not really sure what she's talking about uh, postponing or more, putting a moratorium to me isn't the same thing as canceling, but yet there the you know President Biden has been successful to get some of those crazy, you know, programs that they, you know, just advertise that, that we're going to change your world and you paid a bunch of money. This isn't the normal, you know, state universities. This is more of those, you know, midnight online, you know, TV ads that say, "Come to our college, online college, and and you're all set for life." Yeah, some of that they went to those companies and said, "No, you you got to return the money or you know we, we you can't have the debt going to that." So, but anyways. Um, So, you know, and and what is Warren's claim is that the cancellation, you know, canceling $50,000 in student loans per person would erase all debt for 36 million borrowers. You know, that's good overall for the economy. Um, You know, you know, as the analysis clearly shows, canceling student loan debt is a matter of racial justice and about providing relief to millions of hardworking people. Okay, um, the NAACP president, Derek Johnson, even went further and is saying that the student debt crisis is a racial justice issue, an economic issue and a moral issue. So so now there are they playing the race card? Are they saying that if you're not for full forgiveness of student loan debt, you're a racist? I don't know if most Americans believe that to be the case um and and i mean maybe the moral issue is the the, the university is charging so much for tuition knowing that the, the it was just gonna the 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 incoming students were just going to borrow the money um and get the money and get a free and get the money from the government um, but so back to the 50 30 20 rule okay so if um so how how could you get so if if the student loan debt was forgiven, right? Um, all right. Well, a lot of the student loan payments are based on what we call an income-driven repayment plan. All right, which which basically says that regardless of what originally we told the student, they would have to be making payments when they graduated based on a certain amortization schedule, based on a certain interest rate that the loans are being you know at and a time period of repayment. What they do is they say we you can vary from that if you're not making enough income to to warrant to cover that payment, you know there'd be too much of a financial uh, hardship. So they get to what's called an income driven repayment plan where you're capped at a certain percentage of your discretionary income, all right? So, and there's a few different models out there, again, but basically what the education department, what they do is they find the correct federal poverty guideline for your location and family size, okay? Then they multiply that number by 1.5. And then they subtract that number from your adjusted gross income, all right? And that gets to this calculation that they call, you know, how much of a cap on discretionary spending do we make, that we say you can, that you have to cover, and that becomes how much you're paying back on the student loan. So for example, let's say you had a recent college grad, single, no children, is making $40,000 a year. Okay. Well, for a one-person home right now, let's say that the Federal Poverty Guideline, it's going to be different, of course, the zip code, but let's say it's 13590 in, the, in my example that I looked up here. Okay, so you take the $13,590, you times that by one and a half. Okay, that gets you 20385 Now you subtract that from the $40,000, and that gets you to 19615 and that's what they say is your discretionary income 19615 so then you take that number times 20% and that gets you so you take the 19615 times 20% and that gets you to 3293 okay or and and so if you look at and that's about $327 a month you know that would be your payment all right and it doesn't matter what your payment should have been. They say that's what you have to pay. That's an example of an income-driven repayment plan, right? Um, now, if we take that number, that three thousand nine two three, and we compare that to the gross $40,000, it's roughly about 10%, right? So we could say that that's... Perhaps how if 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 the new recent college grad or a previously recent college grad, if they could if they didn't have that 10 percent payment, then they could be saving that 10 percent. Now, the question is, would they save that 10 percent or would they just spend it? Right. And and that's the dilemma about whether or not for you know the total forgiveness of the student loan would that you know get the uh, the people back on track to saving for their own retirement or wouldn't it all right so everybody knows or if you you can take my word for it. If you can start when you're just starting your career in the 50-30-20 rule, you'll be fine. But can the 50-30-20 rule still protect the 50-year-old who hasn't started saving for retirement yet? Hmm. That's a bigger, you know, question, right? So let's take an example where you've got a 50-year-old, whether, I don't know, single couple, whatever, making 100000 a year. Let's say they're getting 2% increases on their wages and they haven't started saving yet for retirement but they're going to start the 50 30 20 rule. So 100,000 they're saving or you know they're saving 20,000 and let's say that 20,000 saving is growing at a rate of return of 5%. All right? And then the 50% or 50,000 goes to daily living expenses, income taxes, all that good stuff. The 30% is discretionary 30,000. All right, so if you followed that plan, let's say they're 50 now, they're planning on retiring at full uh, Social Security age, 67. So they're gonna be working for 18 more years. All right, now over it, so the cumulative savings of that 18 years, okay, is going to be about 684,000, about 685,000, okay. Is that gonna cover it? Now let's, we can now say they're going to retirement. Let's say their combined social securities are gonna be, let's say he's you know, the 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 high income earner is gonna get forty eight thousand in social security, half spousal is gonna get twenty-four. All right, and now we 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 say, okay, they're starting their withdrawal at age sixty-eight, and they've got their nest egg now is six hundred and eighty-five thousand. They're going to follow the 4% rule, you know, that takes them 30 years out to age 97. That's long enough for them, let's say, assuming again, assuming that 5% rate of return, they start pulling out 4% the first year or about 28000 So, the, So roughly their combined Social Security plus the 4% withdrawal in year one of retirement gets them to about 101000 about one hundred one thousand a year. And then they would have protection on that because Bill Benjamin, who came up with the four percent rule, built in three and a half percent inflation on spending, and there's a cost of living increases were already mentioned, you know, on Social Security. So that should be able to keep their lifestyle going. Now, is that hundred and one thousand enough? Well, let's go back. Now we go back to the. Um, the 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 what what I call the lifestyle creep right so if if they started you know now at age 50 and they're 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 spending eighty thousand dollars you know that's the 50 and the 30 percent and then they're increasing that a little bit because they're getting a two percent pay increase by the time they get to 67 that combined spending is 112,000 See, we don't. In, in retirement, they don't have to worry about twenty percent savings anymore. They just got to be worry about maintaining their lifestyle that they've accustomed to. So, if they were able to keep under that, you know, eighty percent where they they were spending throughout those eighteen years, that cumulative of spending with that little bit of a bracket creep is about one hundred twelve thousand. So, what the the four percent rules? They could. They said they could do one hundred and one, not one hundred and twelve, but at least they're in the ballpark. All right. But what happens if we change now to a higher inflation rate? Okay. So now I'm going to run the same 18 year scenario, but I'm not going to, but I'm going to assume that we have this higher inflation. We don't have what we've historically, for the last 40 years, 20 years, you know, the 2%. Inflation, <laughs> you know, what happens if we have this higher embedded inflation? So let's now change and and assume that we have seven percent inflation for the next few years, and then let's say three and a half percent inflation ongoing. Now it's also realistic that they would, based on that, because of the tight labor market, that the companies are going to have to pay them a little bit more, right? So let's assume instead of a two percent cost of living increase on their wages let's assume a 3%. So that yeah they're going to get a higher raise it might not be high enough to cover what real inflation is that's what we're that's the issue right now that this country is facing right. All right. So now we got the 100,000 but we're going to assume 3% increase in wages for the 18 years but now we're going to start the same you know so in year 1 though we're still going to do the same thing. So we're starting at 100,000 we're going to have 50,000 30000 you know 50000 for daily living expenses and mandatory living expenses 30000 for discretionary and 20000 for savings All right but if we do that if we say that we're not going to reduce the 20000 in savings okay what happens is you're going to have to cut one of the other two You're going to have to cut either the mandatory spending or the discretionary spending. So obviously, you're going to cut the discretionary spending first. So whereas in year one, you're saying I want to do 30% discretionary spending, that's going to have to slowly come down if you want to maintain the 20% savings. All right. So, as a matter of fact, it creeps down. It goes from thirty down to twenty-eight, down to twenty-six, down to twenty-four by age, you know, sixty. It's down to twenty-two percent by age sixty-seven. It's down to twenty percent. Okay, because you have to spend a little. Because you're building in higher inflation and higher than what your pay increases are. It's costing you more for that mandatory spending. That's going up from the fifty percent. The 50% mandatory spending is going up to 60% by, you know, to keep that spending going by age 67, all right? But you want to maintain that same savings rate of 20%. That's your, you know, you're saying that one as I'm, you're trying to keep that discipline to do that. All right, well, how is this looking in the long run? So now if you do that, your cumulative savings at the end of 18 years would be 739,000. Okay. Now it's a little bit higher than my first scenario, six hundred eighty-four thousand, because of the your because I increased your pay by an extra percentage. So twenty percent of increased pay gets it up a little bit more. But now if we run the thirty the the thirty uh, if we run the four uh, percent rule, so now you're starting with seven hundred and forty thousand dollars, and you're going to assume five percent. And you're still going to assume 3.5% inflation at that point ongoing to age 97 or 30 years. Okay, now we add in the same Social Security as before, 72594 But now your first-year withdrawal is a little bit higher, 30000 Okay, so now you're at um, – you, you, but overall, it's not too much different than where we were before. You know, before we said you could be spending about 101000 under this plan – you could be spending about one hundred and three thousand. It's not that big of a difference, okay? But your but the difference is your lifestyle creep because now if we go back to this higher spending, whereas if you got accustomed to that to, to that you kept your lifestyle going with that higher inflation. Remember, in the first scenario, your your combined discretionary and mandatory spending at age sixty seven was one hundred and twelve. Under this new scenario, even with the lower discretionary over time, but the higher mentor, you're at 132000 to maintain that lifestyle retirement. So now your 103000 is way short of your 132000 That's when we start having discussions about, is this going to affect you in your retirement or do we have to increase or change our other assumptions? All right. hear the music. That's Everybody have a good week. Uh, Talk to you soon.
1: Tune in next week for more financial food for thought. For more information about the show, for estate planning or upcoming seminars, call the estate planning team at 440-239-2090. Thanks for listening.